This is CouncilCast, part of the Legal Talk Network, and I'm your host, Karen Conroy. When you face a complex case outside your expertise, you bring in a co-counsel for next-level results. When you want to engage, expand, and elevate your firm, you bring in a marketing co-counsel. In this podcast, I bring in marketing experts who each answer one big question to help your firm achieve more. Here's today's guest. I'm Cindy Rodriguez-Constable. I'm a media strategist who works with business owners and executive women with a strong track record for results who want the kind of pitches that give them high visibility in the media, strong social proof, and recognition in target-rich environments. I can do this for them, even if they don't feel like they're pitch-ready and have not had media placements in the past. And I'm excited to be here. Cindy, thank you so much for being here. This is a, a kind of mysterious category of marketing. And I know some like public relations people don't like to consider themselves marketing. There's sort of a little bit of a, a drama between the two categories. But I have a lot of clients who want to know more about pitching and marketing and being published and all of these things that we're going to talk about today. So we are here to answer all the questions, Absolutely. <laughs> get it Let's all it. ironed out and like, <laughs> tell people what they need to know. But also, more specifically, the topic and the question for today are what are the myths of being published? So there's a lot of ideas out there that are wrong and kind of the wrong paths to take and things people have said and all of these myths that we want to address today as well. So first of all, thank you for being here. <laughs> I, I know you're in Florida. We've had like such a challenge with all the hurricanes getting this. Like it's, it's a miracle that we're actually here. Hurricanes. I mean, <laughs> I, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's so it's a miracle you're here and dry and <laughs> we're recording. So thank you for that. <laughs> sure. I'm glad to still be standing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm glad that there are walls behind you that I can see that are standing as well. <laughs> yeah. So let's start today with talking about just being published and what does it take and what are some of the big myths? So first, I guess we should do a little bit of terminology, right? Because anytime you want to enter into something, you want to make sure we're all in agreement on what the words mean. So from a standpoint of being published, like we're not necessarily talking about books because that's kind of a whole different animal, a whole different industry of the marketing and that we're talking about published in media publications. And nowadays, those media publications are multimedia. So it could be the written word, it could be audio, or it could be video, or any combination thereof. So understanding, you know, and published means you are the creator of that content. So you wrote the article, you recorded the podcast, or you made the video versus a placement or uh, just kind of standard PR where you know, I, as a journalist, I'm writing the article and I use you as a source and I quote you. So published is a little bit different. You would have penned the piece, if you will. Okay, that's important. So when you're showing, so like, for example, on this podcast, you're showing up, this is my podcast, but you're a guest on it. So am I the one that publishes it? And you're, you're kind of being quoted on it? Correct. You're the publisher. Even though I, you're all the, you're all the content. Yes. Right. <laughs> like you're publishing it. So you own the rights to the content and you, it's your platform. It's your idea. And so for me, when I, if I mention this on my media page, I would mention it as a placement. I was featured on your podcast versus if I was in the recording seat, then I would be featuring, you know, you on my podcast. So it's just, you know, 
that's it's kind of who curated the content, if you will, versus who contributed. And that's important because I think when you're talking about, okay, whether you appeared on a podcast, whether it's your podcast and you have people on it, and that's only for podcasts, but also if you have a blog and people are guest posting on your blog, or if you're guest posting on other blogs, you know, as a lawyer, it's important to use the right language <laughs> or anyone actually. I mean, anyone should be using the right. Specifically for lawyers, they tend to be a little more anal than most about what that word means and how it's being used. Yeah, yeah, and they should be. Um, okay, so that's good to clarify, like published versus appeared on versus quoted and, you know, which one is what. So, so thank you for that clarification. <laughs> and then, of course, one of the big myths surrounding that is that you have to be like famous, if you will, to be published or to be quoted or featured, you know, in the media or to be on TV. And you actually don't like it's a 24 hour news cycle. And that goes for online publications as well as like the big media organizations. And they have a lot of airtime to fill a lot of space on these here interwebs to fill. So they need content constantly. And so understanding that you can be like a freelancer or a contributor versus like a staff writer, and you can have your words published in the largest publications in the world, never having written anywhere else before, and not, you know, being Elon Musk. Right. Yeah. And that's not just for like you were saying, it th that's for large publications too. like, you know, all of the ones that I know you talk about a lot, Forbes, Fast Company, all of the big guys, not just like showing up on your local like community news newspaper, <laughs> exactly. just for your like, yeah. little association for, you know, the following 50 people. Yeah. My first article was on the Huffington Post, like back in 2015, I guess. And I had never written anywhere before. And I wrote an article for them because I had something to say. I pitched it to Ariana Huffington. She said yes, and they were in my piece. So was she now, still part know, of the process? She was. Back it was then? before she sold it. Yep. I still have the email because it came from her, and I was like, "Oh, Ariana, answer me!" That's exciting. <laughs> but yeah, so like you can be kind of the opinion person who says a thing. You know, you don't have to be a staff writer. You don't have to be a big name. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to have any journalism training whatsoever. You just have to be able to articulate your thought. And if you're a lawyer your ability to articulate a thought has been well honed, you know, over your career. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what's the next myth about becoming published? Especially, I, I know most people are kind of focusing in on those bigger publications. Yes. And most people want those. I think the next myth, and we kind of, I kind of parlayed into that a little bit, is that you can be the contributor. You don't have to just kind of be on bended knee saying, pick me, pick me and quote me in your you know, publication, which is nice. A well-rounded mix of PR is going to have, you know, some element of everything. But I think the contributor piece is where most people miss the mark. And that's where I tie PR to marketing, because you were talking about PR professionals not being marketers. It's part of your marketing collateral. You know, if I write a piece like, you know, I write for Business Insider and Entrepreneur and, you know, Shones and all these other places, that's part of my marketing collateral because my name is out there. When you Google me, you know, it's going to show up. It's And it's content marketing because you literally created a piece of content, hopefully, for your target audience. So, like, if you, I don't know, if you bake cupcakes, right, you and you're like, oh, my dream publication is Forbes. And I'm why? Right. <laughs> you know, does, does, you know, Billy's mom read Forbes? Is she going to go there to find your cupcake shop? No. So, you know, it's understanding that contributorship is a piece of that overall pie and that you can contribute 
but you want to be selective. You know, industry mags, um, you know, the big boys are great if that helps your business further. You know, so it's kind of, so I think that's a piece that people miss that you can be the contributor versus, you know, just reaching out to journalists or staff writers or other contributors like myself, trying to get somebody to talk about you. And to have them quoted. So the difference is that you are actually drafting and and the author of that piece, as opposed to just having your name sort of mentioned in an article. Right. Which then the link is direct to your business. So Exactly. So what's the difference between having an ongoing relationship with one of those publications versus just kind of, you know, from time to time reaching out and trying to get one publication here or there? How do you get those where you can have a regular contributorship? That's a great question. So a lot of publications are one-offs, meaning every time you want to say something, you have to pitch it to the editor. The thing is, if you've written for that publication before, you have a little bit easier of a time because you have an editor that's published you, so you know who you're gonna talk to. Now, if you only write once a year, they might not remember you. (laughs) But if you're pitching on a regular basis, so like, for example, I write for Business Insider. They have many, many verticals, you know, travel, family, business, like you name it, all all kinds of verticals. They write about many, many topics. So when you written for them before, the editors, of the verticals that I've written under, they send out like a call for stories from time to time to past contributors. So, you know, you can get one-offs that way. So you kind of have a column-ish if you pick up a story they're looking for or if you pitch your editor and they like your story. Other places like Entrepreneur, for example, you would have a regular column. So once you pitch, you get in, it's your column, you write, it still goes through editing, so they can reject it and say, whoa, Nelly, we are not talking about that on today. This is not a thing that's gonna happen. That's not right for our audience. You know, or the editor will say, I need you to change this, change that, you know, whatever. Whereas like Forbes is another regular contributor place. And so we didn't talk about pay. Entrepreneur does not pay um, you to write there. Business Insider will pay for your article. So, you know, a little bit of a bonus there. Forbes pays its contributors, so that's that'll be another miss we'll cover right after. So because Forbes is, is one people are very confused about. But Forbes, if you pitch and you get in, you have a column. And then you have a minimum assignment. So you have to write like at least two articles a month to keep your column. If you want to get paid, you have to write at least five articles a month. So also understanding what is the level of commitment that I'm required to have to keep up this column. And then that's going to go through an editor process. And there's there's well, a, not a good at, amount of work. Not at Forbes. Okay, Forbes not at Forbes. allows okay. you to self-publish. They have a CMS, a content management system, that is called Birdie. And you can self-publish, which is why it is hella hard to get into Forbes. Because your articles are not going to go through the editing process. That doesn't mean that if they're perusing your column and they see something untoward, they won't snatch it. They absolutely will. And they kick people out. All the time but other publications always edit first Forbes kind of does it after you've published it but it's like one of the hardest publications to get into for that reason because they really want to make sure that they have vetted you, you go through like a panel interview like all of this stuff to ensure that you're not going to say anything that is going to get them you know in hot water Okay, so you talked about the difference between that people are confused about with Forbes. So getting getting paid, that whole process. What is the thing that people get most confused about with with that process? That that it's paid, or what is it that's that's kind of throwing them for a loop? So the thing that throws them for a loop is something called like the Forbes Coaches Council, 
or the Forbes Realtors Council or one of these. So a traditional contributor to Forbes goes through the pitching process, goes through the vetting process, and you have a regular column and Forbes pays you to write there regularly. The coaches councils, and there's many of them, solicit you to write for them. They are not actually part of Forbes. So if you write for any one of these councils, you are not a Forbes contributor. The two gentlemen that own the councils pay a licensing fee, and all my attorneys know what this means. They pay a million dollar a year licensing fee to Forbes to utilize the Forbes name. So you're not a contributor. Your articles are not indexed on Forbes, the website itself. And so they'll post them up there, but they're not indexed. So if somebody searched for you as a contributor, they wouldn't find you that way. And on your article, it's going to say, you know, Forbes Realtors Council contributor paid. In other words, you paid to write that article. So that's how the councils work. You're paying $2,000 a year, $5,000 a year, depending which council you're on. And in that little agreement that you sign that humans don't always read all of the fine prints, there's a clause in that agreement that says, if you've written for a council at any time in your life, you will never, ever, never, ever, never be able to write for Forbes, the actual outlet. You are banned for life. And that's really important to know. So using the councils is not a bad thing. I have, you know, some consultant friends or colleagues who write for councils, you know, their target audience is big corporates, you know, big government, NGOs. So they utilize that to be in front of decision makers and demonstrate their expertise. So it's worth the $3,000 a year or whatever they're paying to be on that particular council. But I want people to realize that because if you ever want to write for Forbes Maine, let's call it, and want to be paid, you're barred from doing that. So it's just knowing what's what, how you're going to use it in your business, and which is why I go back to like knowing where your target audience is and should you even be writing for Forbes to begin with, you know, so just understanding, you know, which is why I love media strategy, because there's a lot to think about before you just start like pitching and then you come across something blocks you didn't know were there. Sorry to jump in, but why do you think that is that they ban you? Like they, it's almost like they have... Because you've paid a fee and because that, you know, because remember they're licensing that name. And so if Forbes let you in and Forbes is paying you, then Forbes is eroding their own revenue from that fee that they're paid to utilize the name. And then the people who utilize the name would have a lesser pool of people to, you know, make it worth it. So it's just, everybody's just protected. And so, you know, so, but it's just good to know ahead of time that it's really good to know. Yeah. That if you do that, you are shutting the door permanently forever writing for Forbes. And so you started to talk a little bit for a minute ago and I wanted, this is what I wanted to come back to my marketing professor. When I was getting my MBA, he, he kind of, there was a few main big ideas that he talked about. One of which was figure out where your potential clients are and be there. And so this is kind of what you're talking about in terms of like, if you're a cupcake baker and you're trying to like write an article on Forbes, that makes no sense. It doesn't align it. And so this comes back to strategy and figuring out where you uh, should be like, who, who are your target clients or what is your target goal? Sometimes for law firms, it's a little bit different. They're looking more for like reputation building and it's not like they're looking necessarily for sales. They're looking for big brands just to kind of boost their their firm's name and stuff. But whatever that goal is, 
you need to start with that and then work backwards for which publications work. So can you talk a little bit about like what categories of different types of publications there are and like where they align differently? Yeah, absolutely. And it, for me, it all, yeah, I'm a strategy girl. It all comes down to strategy. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How is it benefiting you? You know, where are you taking it? How are you going to utilize it? Because we see a lot of folks who, you know, maybe get quoted then they don't know what to do with that piece once it's happened. Like they post on their social media, on their LinkedIn page, and they're like, ah, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and I was quoted in, I don't know, Psychology Today. Psychology Today, there you go. And so you're like, oh, you know, fantastic. And then social media cycles, and it's gone. Like, okay, so you did all that work for what? And... Of course, and then there's the whole thing of whether it's a hot link, it's a no-follow link. Like, you know, what did Psychology Today do with your quote? Did they have no link? You know, is it a no-follow, meaning it's really not going anywhere? It shows a link, but you're not getting any street cred for that. You know, so there's all these things to consider. Like, how are those being used? And just and where does it fit in your overall strategy? Because, you know, PR or being published or being quoted or, you know, any of these things is social proof, right? So from the perspective of even if you're an attorney and your objective isn't maybe necessarily to get clients from a publication, you're trying to get good street cred. So are you needing street cred with other people in the legal profession? Or, you know, are you a, I don't know, trademark attorney? And you're trying to get, you know, street cred with like people who invent things, you know, so where would you need to, like, what do you want this media placement, whatever kind of media placement it is to do for you and your brand? What do you want that to do? And so that's kind of where you would start. And so do I need an industry mag? You know, am I, you know, am I a government lawyer, for example? I need to, you know, have some media. So like the, you know, mayor of New York knows I'm a good lawyer because I want to represent them. I mean, good luck with that, but I want to represent them. You know, I want to be their, you know, municipal attorney. (laughs) So what publications is the mayor of New York going to read? Well, he might be reading government industry publications. So maybe that's where you want to you know, put some information and in. you want to talk about, you know, the pitfalls of, of zoning or urban planning or development or, you know, or maybe you want to like the mayor runs the police force there. That's not true in all mayorships. You know, so maybe you want to be in a, you know, public safety type publication that talks about these things. Or maybe you have a contrarian viewpoint and how things about. So you want to really think about what do I want these media placements to do for me? Whose eyeballs do I need to be on there? And, you know, and it all comes down to like, how am I going to serve the readership or the viewership of this publication? Because no editor is going to let you in if you're writing about yourself anyway. That's, that was my next that's question. That was a- that's not, okay. I was like, we can get there. So how am I going to serve the viewership? Exactly. Because I feel like a lot of my clients really want to talk about themselves, their experience, the cases they've won. And this is my favorite myth. (laughs) Right, exactly. So and then I was going to spin that for a myth. Exactly. So what are the myths and the correct kind of direction for what you should be? So you found those publication, you figure out, okay, this, these are the top three or four that I really want to be published in. So then how do you determine what to write? And what what is really what are they really looking for? That's a great question. So first, I'm going to say and it's something I say to, to clients and students all the time is stop chasing logos. <laughs> that's the first thing. That is a hard lesson to learn. Doing, right? <laughs> yeah. 
because you're going to spend a lot of money with a PR agency or somewhere. And then, you know, even if it's earned media, you're, you're really going to have a, a lot to show for it. So stop chasing, stop chasing logos. You don't need to appear in 65 outlets in order to have an impact. So once you've selected those, you know, places, media selections that you have, you're going to want to investigate what does well. So you look at their trending stories, their top 15, their top 10, they're always going to have some kind of list and see what are they writing about? What viewpoint it is? Is it a third person story? Is it a first person story? Is it a personal essay? Is it an as told to? Is it a how to? Is it just purely informational? Is it Q&A? Is it interviews? Like what types of pieces are they publishing in that publication? And is that what you want to do? So say they're doing Q&As. Do you want to be the one asking the Qs or do you be the one want to be the one giving the As? That's different sides of the fence. So just understanding the nuance of those publications and how it works, because when you're going to pitch an editor, you have to remember, you know, like what's in it for me, meaning the readership of that publication. The editor is a nine to five employee of that publication. Their job is to get eyeballs on the things that that editor publishes. Some of them might get bonuses for viewers and you know, all the things. So yeah, clicks and blah, blah, blah. So your question is, okay, what in my toolbox, in my zone of genius, my level of expertise would benefit the readers of this publication? Do I have something to contribute to the conversation that's being had? Do I have a contrarian viewpoint to a widely accepted thing that I can back up, you know, with some data and some, you know, information, expertise, you know, versus talking about yourself. And everyone always wants to start talking about themselves. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I mean, let's just be real. Like nobody cares. Like everybody and their grandmother has a rags to riches story. I don't care that you grew up in the projects in Brooklyn and, you know, you bootstrapped your way through law school and you got... You know, I feel okay. like this is one huge myth, and I'm just going to kind of make a, a point of this being a myth, is this whole tell us your story idea. I don't know where this started. Maybe you have some insight into it, but I've been on podcasts where they, they you know, tell us your journey. I'm like, no, I don't, first of all, I don't, I don't want to speak to people who relate to my journey. I want to speak to people who relate to where I'm at right now. Exactly. Because oh, I love this. I love this line of questioning. <laughs> yeah. I have so much okay. to say. <laughs> so, yeah, so tell me why that's such a, a horrible myth and it's so wrong. So if you think about, you know, so I'm a professional speaker, right? So if you think about storytelling and speech writing, they always talk about the hero's journey, right? You know, blah, blah, blah. You go through the hero's journey, which not that that doesn't sell because if it did sell, it wouldn't be working. And most, if you're branding, marketing, most of them are gonna wanna use your story and start there. So by default, you think, okay, I need to use my story in my marketing collateral and in my PR campaign. Now, there are times that your story may be useful, but this goes back to where I'm a word nerd and a communication strategist because how you tell that, which pieces of that story you use matter. Because if you were, you know, broke, busted and disgusted for a while and you came up through the ranks and you do all these things and they're here, okay, great. That story, so stories are about relatability, right? You want the, people to remember, you know, stories, you know, sell, you know, better than anything else. But what about that story are you trying to connect with the audience on? So if you're connecting with the broke, busted and disgusted as a lawyer, that's kind of problematic because you're probably not gonna be able to get any good billable clients if you're connecting with those folks, they can't afford you. 
and then that's not to say that you abandon your roots or where you came from. It's how do I use that? In what capacity does that make sense? Or is the part of my story where I was the editor of the law journal or whatever at my law school, the place where I drop them in? Because when you're telling a story, you're going to drop them in to a piece and then you're going to move them along. Because it's the hook, right? In marketing, you've got the hook, right? Exactly. So you're hook. not going to start at birth, like, okay, right. and then was I was the hook. The I was broke. <laughs> no. Yeah. Now, the hook might be I was broke, depending on what your story is and where you're going with it. But the hook might more be, you know, like, you know, when I stepped in front of the jury to give my opening argument, you know, this happened or that happened. And so you're like, what happened? Oh, my God. Because, you know, lawyers are storytellers, right? Opening arguments, closing arguments. You know, even when you are preparing your line of questioning for your witnesses, you know, that's why the objection leading the witness comes up, right? Because you're trying to paint a picture, tell a story. So it's it's not just like, this is my source, what I did, because the problem is the only people who can relate to that are people who have had a similar story as you and who you, like you said, in my capacity, who I am today, where I am now and what, and the service I provide to others is the people who connect with a prior version of myself who I'm trying to reach or am I trying to reach people that are connecting with the current version of myself and the, the services and the products and whatever it is I provide? And then most of the times you want to pitch your story because you just want people to know all about you. would be great. Now, they'll get to know your story. Over time, they'll get to know your story. So when you're pitching, it's very, very challenging to be me-centric, me-focused, because that's not focused on, that's egocentric. It's not focused on the readership. It's not benefiting them in any way because... One, you know, unless you're like Jeff Bezos, they probably don't care how you got there initially. Now, once they get to know you and what you can do for them, then they might say, oh, so you've not always been a lawyer? You went to law school in your 40s? Wow, tell me about that. So then you'll get there. But most folks are so wrapped up and themselves and their or the thing they created the business they run that they're like oh I want everybody to know well they will know once you once they know that you can help them so that's kind of my take on that well and the Jeff Bezos story that people connect to is this hope that someday I'm going to be that rich it's not that they care about what happened in the beginning of Amazon when it was just a bookstore and it was competing with you know it was still competing with Barnes and Noble and whatever nobody cares about that part of the story the part of the story they want to hear is the part that like connects to something it's possible for me too. Yeah, the, in their head about the hope of that. And maybe I won't be a billionaire, but maybe I can be super successful. And so I think that's so, so important to focus on that part of the story that you want to connect with people. So if you want to connect with those people who are down and out, and you want to say, okay, I was down and out at some point, which makes no sense. Like, why would you want to pull those in? Then that's the story you tell, but right. that makes now, sense. Now, if you're like a civil rights attorney, totally different. You may very well want to connect with those people, or you're probably more likely trying to connect with the organizations that represent those people. So it would still be in how you tell the story. And of course, you know, some, a lot of lawyers listening, right, or all lawyers listening probably, I want to put my disclaimer out. <laughs> By no means am I advocating for you being untruthful yes. or oh, yes. inauthentic yes. in how you tell your story. Yeah. So making I'm not story. saying, <laughs> yeah, no, we're not making up stories. No. We're not manipulating our story. Yeah. We're not manipulating the, the, you know, the, the, anybody, you know, in this. It's being judicious and selective so that you get the desired outcome 
while being authentic and truthful and above board and, you know, all, all of the things. So for me, I just want to make sure you know, all my lawyers understand. We're, we're not trying to defraud anybody here. No, that's important too. Yeah, let, let's not just like decide that all of a sudden you were born in a different part of the world and you went through an entirely different Correct. experience that didn't happen <laughs> just right. because you Correct. want a good because story. Because you're trying to connect with someone, <laughs> yes. You know, so you want to connect on a realness or an authentic basis. Or sometimes even being upfront and saying, you know, because, you know, so part of my, you know, when I talk about, you know, curiosity, right? Under, like connect from a curiosity standpoint. Maybe I don't understand exactly what my client, so you're an accident attorney. Do you really understand what your client is going through? No, if you didn't sustain the brain injury, you don't understand. What you understand is how to help them get compensation or accommodation for the injury they sustained. But you don't know what it's like to be, have a, you know, a, a, a TBI. So, you know, understanding too, like maybe this is the client I need, but also how you connect them matters because, you know, it would be invalidating and dismissive to pretend like you actually know how they feel because you don't know how to feel. Unless you've walked that walk, you don't know how they feel. Yeah. And so then the story is more like, these are the successes I've had in the past. I've worked on this kind of a case in the past. This is what I know. And this is the story I can tell in relation to your experience, but I don't know your experience. Or these are the myths and the downfalls yes. and the pitfalls of what you don't know about how this case would proceed how the should legal you choose system. to, you know, yeah. Yeah. is going to treat it. Yes. So it's, you know, you can connect. It's just is important. Exactly. Okay. So along those lines, I know you talk about, so being, you know, words matter and being really careful with your words, but also talking about different voices. And I know that you and I both work with a lot of women and, you know, kind of alternate opinions and positions than sort of those typical voices that you see, and especially a lot of the large media publications. So let's talk a little bit, How what, what are those myths around be, having kind of a different position or opinion and what people think they need to say? I'm sure, you know, even for myself, when I started drafting blog posts and appearing on different publications, I, I start by looking at what, what's out there, what, you know, like you were saying, what's being published. And it's all oftentimes a lot of white guys. They're saying things a little bit differently. They have a different approach for me. And it's like, and I've had that conversation in my own head. Like, do I need to adjust my approach to be more like them? Or what, you know, what's your advice? And what's the kind of mythical ideas that people have around that kind of that kind of work? Yeah, so you know, it's it's no secret that the systems and structures upon which things are built were built for a very specific demographic. They were not built for demographics like mine in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, media outlets are looking for diverse voices, and diverse does not just mean because you know I have brown skin or I'm Puerto Rican or I'm a woman. Diverse meaning diversity of thought, and what informs your thought or how you see the world is your lived experience, you know, which is why, you know, I can see the same situation differently because my lived experience, the lens through which I'm viewing the world has been shaped by the things that I've been through, you know, as a Hispanic woman, you know, like working to not have my Hispanic accent, you know, so that I speak plainly. And, you know, so there's lots of things that I've been through. So it forms my opinion differently on the same subject. So, you know, our, our world, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, the polarization. We like to look at things very black and white. And for lawyers in particular, great crowd that understand that we actually live in the gray. There's, you know, we try to make everything black and white, but it's not. We live in the gray. 
So the gray is those diverse voices where you bring nuance to the perspective because we want to bring the approach of, you know, yes and versus either or. And so, you know, media outlets are very open to diversifying their contributor base to not have a homogenous voice and a homogenous opinion. And though, and even though, you know, like politics is a great example of this, right? We like to homogenize people, the women's vote. Well, what does that even mean? Like you're a woman, I'm a woman. We're still going to see things different because we're not all the same, right? You know, we have lots of different things, you know, or the so. Hispanic vote. Yeah. Well, the Hispanic vote's not all the same, no. depending on what, you know, what, if, you know, this they have behind that, you know, if I'm Venezuelan or if I'm Cuban or if I'm Puerto Rican, if I'm, you know, hey, like, you know, like Honduran, like we're not a block. We don't vote as a block. And so it's important for publications to, you know, have those diverse opinions. And so editors really actually love a good contrarian opinion because if, like you said, you're looking and most of the advice is very similar, one, from the standpoint of like, you know, standing out in the sea of sameness, it gets very challenging to get your pitch accepted because you sound like everyone else. Like what's, what's the hook here? What's the angle? What's my reader going to take away from this that hasn't already been said, you know, a hundred different times, the same ish way. So being able to present your idea, you know, with nuance, with texture in the gray, and doing it in a way that doesn't alienate or attack the other side, you know, is important. And so that's where language comes in, words matter, you know, what terminology are you using? You know, have you like researched the context in which those words are good or not good? You know, so, and of course, you know, humans have assigned morality to just like everything, which is just hilarious in and of itself. But so it's, it's really about, you know, those diverse perspectives and, the way diverse perspectives come oftentimes are from those intersectionalities of the makeup of that particular human being. So do you recommend, how do you recommend adjusting your pitch with the kind of that lens of diversity? Do you just put that sort of, sort of as a sub note within your content or do you, you know, just go loud and proud in the title or what's the best way? And, and here's the follow-up question. Have you ever had seen publications where they are not open to the, this idea? So both great questions. And short answer to your second question, yes. Really? Period. That's kind of Absolutely. surprising. Well, if they have a very particular audience, you know, like, you know, if we're talking major media outlets, it's like, you know, Fox News may not really be interested in a different perspective. Oh, we have to say. So moving on. CNN, MSC, oh, whatever. They have a narrative, right? Um, you know, so like if you're automotive wrench magazine, you know, if you're, you're, you're writing about a particular brand of car and you're saying muscle cars are shit, they're, oh, wait, yeah, hey, yeah, no, yes, yes, you know, yeah. like, so yeah. they might just want to be open to it. So you will look for publications that are open to perspective. But from the standpoint of like, so your pitch. Now, one, I'm going to tell you to not fall in love with the title of whatever it is your proposed article is, because editors are going to, <laughs> they're going to change it. They're going to run it on different ways with different titles for the same article because they're A-B testing. They do all the time. They're going to change the picture on the top. They're going to change a word on the top. So they do all the time to see like what's going to work. Um, so you can't fall in love with your title because they're going to change it. I think that's actually just to interrupt for a second there. That's an important marketing strategy for everyone to pay attention to. Like you need to try different things. And marketing is a lot of trial and error and being patient with that process and realizing that you're going to try a lot of things. 
as a part of the process. And it's not that those things are wrong or failures. They're giving you information for what is right. So keep that in mind in terms of your entire marketing strategy. This is, this is something that we should all be doing for, for all of the parts of your marketing. Yeah, and so and publishing articles or being mentioned or quoted is, is much the same because they know what works for their for their audience. So you, I, I tell my you know fellow my clients, you know you're gonna have to drop drop your pride of authorship because the editor is gonna get in there and especially if you're not a writer or journalism major, right? You know, like my some of my articles I've written have been edited so hard until I'm like I didn't even write that. I don't wrote <laughs> I that. Recognize but, it. <laughs> But that's my idea and that's my premise and that was my desired outcome and holy crap, you made that sound amazing. Yeah, well, and editor, those are going to be your their leads job. too. Like those are still right. the same people that are going to come to you. You're going to make that connection. So whether the word is this or that, does it really matter in the end? No, you, you're still getting the outcome you want. Your films are going to get hurt if you're worried about what the editor is going to do to your title and to your piece. So, but, so, but yes, but if you're going to pitch it, you want to pitch strong what that hook is you know why the reader should care and what's the you know intended outcome of the piece because you don't want to sugarcoat what it is you're trying to convey so you know if you have something very contrarian you know i would just put that right out there and say this is exactly how i feel or if you maybe are agreeing with some premise but there's something people have missed about it you want to just put that right out there and say this is the element i agree with how we're doing it, but this is the element that people are missing that would you know, make it better or make it different or, or whatever. So you always wanna to wanna to be very, very clear on that. But also understand now, if you submit an idea to some editors, they may come back and say, ooh, I like that idea. Could you write it from this perspective or from this viewpoint? And that's your opportunity to say yes or no. If you feel like that would dilute your idea or diminish it or you know, make, not make it better in some way, you just say no, and then you're going to move on to a different pub. But if you're like, oh, yeah, I could write it, you know, that way, you know, no problem. Then, you know, you submit it. Okay. All right. So it's time for the book review. And this go goes right in line with all of this stuff that we've been talking about. So this is a nice, like, easy runway into the book. So, so tell us, Cindy, what book you have to recommend for the audience that aligns with all of these awesome ideas that they should really pick up and consider in terms of all of their publications. So a book that I love, it's not a marketing book, it's called The Anti-Racist Business Book, An Equity-Centered Approach to Work, Wealth, and Leadership, written by Trudy Lebrun. Yeah, so that's kind of the subtitle, right? But The Anti-Racist Business Book is, is the name of it. And, you know, so one, you know, if, if that ruffles your feathers a little bit, because we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, that kind of thing, just relax, you know, nobody, nobody's calling you anything. Um, <laughs> Take the, a breath. <laughs> the, yes. The, the reason I like that book so much is because she is living in the gray. Yes. Right. And she is understanding and she's talking about, you know, how having an equity centered approach to you know leadership or, or business processes is important because you know the modern world is constantly you know evolving and there's you know a lot of times are like you know our theories or leadership were, were, were crafted long time ago and you know we have to understand that people are not omnipotent necessarily they couldn't have thought of some of the things that we have now you know like i uh, you know i'm a 70s baby right so like I could never have dreamed of being talking on a video call to you right now. Like, I mean, this was like, not, you know, like I, I had a cord on the phone, right? Like, I mean, to age myself a bit, 
call waiting didn't exist, okay? It was not a thing. Like, I remember when it came out yeah. instinctively. This is so, like Jetsons era stuff that we're doing now. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. like, where is my Rosie? Yeah, That's exactly. what I want to know. Exactly. <laughs> but so, you know, cars. understanding, right, yeah. but like fixing old systems isn't, you know, a slap. Right. It is like innovation wouldn't exist if we weren't willing to examine how something worked and do something different. So it's no different with words and you know the way that you you know think of a you know like we have new words that come up all the time that were not used before or the context in which a word is used now is different from how it was used in the 20s or the 1800s or or whatever so sharing you know those perspectives you know if you can like not be offended for a minute and you know read about what the toxic parts of capitalism look like versus a justice a justice-based like commerce system because you know the systems are not designed in perfection you know and the systems don't even operate like if you're looking up the textbook definition of a lot of the you know systems that we have now the systems that we exist under are not those textbook definitions they're manipulated for all sorts of reasons right so i just really love this book because it tries to pull it you know, look at the existing business practices, you know, how do we make them equitable? How do we exist within the framework as we work towards, you know, improving, changing, innovating, and, you know, how this model that we exist under works. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, definitions, understanding what the meaning of some of the things are, you know, how far are we from the textbook definition of how it was meant to work? And what languaging do we use? How do we get people to come together in community and agree to do things different or better that make the world itself, if you will, you know, more equitable? So you just examine those things. And if you're in the press, PR, any type of leadership, you're a business owner, you know, like we've seen people be tanked by one, you know, poor tweet, you know, or a marketing campaign that goes really south really yeah, fast. One word, one word is slightly wrong or they meant something different, but it doesn't matter. It's being interpreted a different way. And that's it. That's all it takes to, uh, I mean, people are losing their jobs. They're losing their careers. They're losing their reputation over one bad phrase when if they had just taken that step back and kind of recognize where those pitfalls and the challenges and the changes are. And that's are. where the diverse perspectives come from. Yeah. Because, you know, if you work in an office, that's very homogenous in nature. You know, everybody comes from the same similar background and all the things. Their, their intersectionalities are very similar. And you write a think piece because you've existed kind of in a vacuum and you've not sought outside or different perspectives or when you hear a different perspective, you know, your feelings are hurt. And so you can't take it on board and realize that, oh, there might be a different way to look at this thing that I was just unaware of. You know, people, people take ignorance as, as, a, as an insult. No, I am ignorant of how to build an airplane. That doesn't make me stupid. I just don't have that information. I've never sought it out. I haven't had a need to. And it's the same way when we talk about communication strategy and, and you know, all of those things you may not have had access to that, to that information because you haven't sought it out. Not that it isn't available. Like if I Googled it, I could probably find some information on how to build a plane, but I've never gone and looked for it. So if I'm going to take a stance on something, if I'm gonna draw my line in the sand, which as you are, if you're writing a think piece of some kind, what is that informed by? And what kind of pushback might I get? And if I get pushback, 
is my answer, well, this is just how it's done, or this is how I feel, like, because your opinion is not a fact, no matter how much you want to allege that, opinions are not facts, all my lawyers in the room can, you know, yay, opinions are not facts, and ignorance is not a defense, you know, that's another lawyerism, right, so being ignorant to how a segment of the population would feel about something being said by a certain segment of the population is not a defense of why I said it, you know, and we all know that double down doesn't really work either, you know, so it's just, for me, if you're going to try to rise in thought leadership, especially if you're a professional, you know, an executive, you've put a lot of, you know, blood, sweat and tears into your getting to where you are in your career. And as you try to step out on a bigger stage by getting press, getting media, we really want to think about that brand reputation management, you know, if you will, because your brand is one thing, but how people perceive it is something else altogether. So it's just for me, it's just that piece. So I, I just like that book because it kind of just points to all of those different things that, you know, you and I wouldn't have necessarily thought about so that you can have dialogue versus, you know, just talking at and saying like, this is what it is. Well, and so I think it that promotes dialogue. it's so important because so many lawyers are doing a lot of this press and publications to present themselves as an expert and intelligent and well-informed on all of these things. And so if you are really missing this whole angle and coming across as ignorant on, like you're saying, ignorance is no defense on this. And so if you have not informed yourself on how to present your, your language and what pitfalls you might have, you're really missing a huge part of what's happening in the world. And so it's, it's critical if, if you're trying to present yourself as an expert to make sure that you're informed on this. Right. And it also helps you, you know, stand out from the sea of sameness. So if you're, you know, a, a corporate lawyer or you do, I don't know, business law, you know, then you don't sound like everyone else. You're not saying the same things that everyone else says because that doesn't make you interesting. Now, you might get on some spots because you're an expert and they're like, hey, can you tell us how XYZ thing works? Yeah, you tell how it works. But as, as lawyers will tell you, how something works technically and how it's applied are not the same. So to me, that's where part of where the rub is. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Cindy Constable is a strategist, writer, and speaker, is the founder of Women Breaking the Mold, which I think most of our listeners, especially the awesome women lawyers who are at that point in their career when they're really looking for being present in these publications and they need the help, this is this is the thing for you. The Women Breaking the Mold, we will link to that and your website and all of that on the, on the show notes page, but also the co-founder of Results Global Impact Consulting. But Pay attention to women breaking the mold. That's where that's where I think most people need to uh, follow those links. But thank you so much for being here. I think this was there's so many little solid gold nuggets of value and information here. I know people are going to get awesome takeaways and feel just a little bit more understanding and solid in what they need to understand to think about being in these these big publications. So thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank Karen. It was really my pleasure to be here and I'm you know, excited to lend to the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CouncilCast podcast. Be sure to visit our website at council-cast.com for the resources mentioned on the episode and to give us your feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next one.